0: Hello and welcome to a Pinch of Magic podcast with me, Rebecca Anuwin. So I am joined by a friend of mine today who I have known for years. And I was we were just having a little chuckle because (laughs) every time someone comes on my podcast, I always say their name before we start because you know names are important. And sometimes when you see someone's name written down, it's not quite, you know, how you say it in your head isn't quite right. Now I'm very proud to say I have had her first name correct. The second name though, my Dutch is a bit drastically rubbish. <laughs> so I am joined by my very good friend Ninka, and I would have pronounced it wrong, close to Ninka Turlings, but I'm not putting my N and my G together. So Ninka, how do I say your surname? I think you did really well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Gold star. <laughs> but Maybe we were just Turlings. Uh, yeah. Turlings. And it's like it's names are important aren't they and it's like when i look at my name people often get my um my second name wrong but even yeah. when i was growing up my um my surname people would always get wrong and it g- gets a bit of a like oh never mind but actually our names are important as we were just saying particularly in the area that you find yourself working in it can be like getting a name wrong or using a name can be disempowering to people so ninka but everyone that doesn't know you as well as I do, would you give us an overview of the work that you do and how you got to where you are now? Because I know you started with the energy of burnout, and it's taken still very much the energy, but it's taken a different turn, and a turn that I know my audience is gonna love. Mm. <laughs> well, uh yeah, so
1: I'm a um, adrenal health expert. Um and that's been, as you say, the main focus of my work for years. Um, because I have a background in social psychology, I'm a, a yoga teacher as well. I don't teach any classes anymore, but um, I mainly use that diploma, if you will, for the body mind connection. And I've had a burnout at uh, 24 myself when I was 24. I'm 37 now. So this was back in a time when. Not many young people were acknowledged um, as having a burnout when they did, you know, because mental health wasn't such a big issue, uh, or it was a big issue, but it was not so much Mm. spoken about back then. Um, So the first step in my career as an entrepreneur and an influencer, however much I dislike the word... (laughs) um yeah it has been about uh, really putting burnout amongst young people on the map in in the country that i'm from which is the netherlands um and i started with a blog which was called young burnout and i had this idea of if i help one person i'm happy you know if mm-hmm. i just give one person the tools that they need, that I needed back then, when I was burned out, then I'm just happy. And the blog became actually really big and had, at a certain point, 100,000 unique visitors per month. And that's when I started expanding on the blog and uh, also developing training and coaching for people. And I found that mainly a lot of young women found my work. So I started questioning: Is this because I'm a woman, mm. and it's just more comfortable to seek help with another woman if you're if you're a girl or a young woman yourself, uh, or is it because there's actually something much deeper going on? And do women get burned out easier or more easily than men do? Maybe. So I started delving into the the numbers, and I found, in fact, that Um, young women do get burned out much more than young men, which isn't to say that guys don't have their struggles, you know. Mm. Um, One of the things with uh, men is, uh, by the way, for whoever is interested in this, that they get addiction problems, for instance, more easily. Um, And maybe we can get back to this, but it has a lot to do with um, the way both Genders. If we just put it on a binary f- to make it easier to explain, both genders are um, looked at in a different way. Um, there are different expectations for uh, women versus men, and so when we when our problems spiral out of control, our mental health problems spiral out of control. Um, we actually end up coping, if you will, in a way. That's consistent with the expectation that's put on uh, either gender. And I know there's more than one gender, but just to put Mm -hmm. it on a binary for now. Um, So that's when I started helping women more and also getting curious about the history behind it. And I just gave you a little bit of a sneak peek into that by saying, you know, it's a lot to do with how we gender things and the way um, uh, men and women are raised uh, in coping with our issues um yeah and that's when i found actually a whole sort of hidden history one of my teachers actually also calls it her story not history yes, but her yeah. story um, her name is karin Haanappel for everybody who's from the netherlands and interested um and uh, yeah and so i found that there's a lot of intergenerational trauma. Uh, It's not just our personal lives where we get burned out or, you know, it's not just your job or it's not just your toxic relationship. It goes much deeper into the questions of um, why did you get into the toxic relationship? Why did you um, make yourself smaller in that job? And why did you keep on piling things onto your own shoulders that actually belong to other people. Uh, A lot of it has to do with the expectations that we have of women. And uh, we have been having those expectations for centuries now. So, yeah, that's that's the, sh- the long and short. Of it.
0: <laughs> no, absolutely. And I know we we spent a long time talking about these these kind of things. Mm. And so in your work, in your you know experience, your study in, in your like in your practice, what do you find are the biggest expectations that are placed on your clients? So, say, for example, in this case, you know, people that identify as women who are coming to see you. Um, what is what are those historical um burdens that that women have placed upon them Mm. well
1: mainly that we conform to somebody else's image of what it means to be a good woman and and in an extension to that uh, to be a good person Mm -hmm. um and then we go and we look at traditional gender roles, which are not that traditional at all, you know, not if you go back thousands of years, but maybe if we go back a couple of uh, decades, uh, and we look at, let's say, the, the 40s or, or the 50s, that whole idea of the ideal woman, you know, the one that takes care of the, the household, the people around her, who is just subservient to others that's very much ingrained in our consciousness and in into the expectations that society has of women. Um, and that's a very clear image, but it's been there for centuries, even before the 40s and 50s traditional housewife idea. And mm-hmm. it's even there today, because even though we we have the same rights, this is what I always say, even though we have the same rights as men, You know, the right to vote, the right to labor if we want to, the right to, um, how do you say this, not possess our own bodies, but to be like the owner of our own bodies, Mm -hmm. ownership over our own bodies, our own sexuality. Um, We might have all of those rights that we didn't have, let's say, 50 or 100 years ago. Uh, We don't have the same freedoms still that men have. There's a lot of research done on emotional labor. And emotional labor basically means that you do a lot of thinking for other people because it's expected of you. So think, for instance, of planning the birthday parties or uh, the daycare that calls you instead of you're in a heterosexual relationship, your uh, husband or your boyfriend. Um, and women get much, much more of This work on their plate than men do. And not just in a relationship or in the household, but actually also on the work floor. So, if you look at a a team of co workers, when there are men and there are women, the women often are still expected to be the more empathetic ones, the ones who keep the relationships between people uh, good. Um, to make sure that everybody feels happy, they're often the shoulder to cry on for people when things don't go right. Um, Even on the work floor, we're often the ones who organize the birthday parties. (laughs) Or the cups of tea. Or the cups of tea, yeah. Mm. So there's a lot of these little hidden things that are sort of extra labor, which is why it's called emotional labor, and that take up they're not big things in themselves, but they take up like little pockets of time within our day, like a minute here and 10 minutes there. And all of that adds up. And it's not just the practical stuff, but it's also that it, it goes into your head. You know, you have to think about things. Um, you might be up in the night thinking like, oh, my goodness, I have to do all of these things tomorrow. Don't know how I'm going to manage. Um And then maybe like your, and this might be a a familiar one for many women in a heterosexual relationship, your husband, uh, husband or your boyfriend might actually want to be helpful, but he might say something like, well, you know, you just have to tell me what I have to do and then I'll do it. And you're like, fuck it, (laughs) if I have to tell you what to do, like half of the work's already been done because it's been in my head, you know, I've, I've done the planning, so I might as well just do it myself. So yeah, that's like a, that's a large part of it. Um, and then there's all these other things like catcalling, um, Not being allowed to be too loud, because if you're too loud and you have too much of an opinion, you might be called a bitch. Or if you own your sexuality, you might be called a slut. Um, Or even if you're not called those things to your face, you might be afraid of that judgment. Um, And that's something, you know, we often put it on ourselves, this um, feeling of, oh, why am I so afraid of other people's judgment? when actually it's something that's very real and very much been uh, imposed upon us um, through our own lives um, and also for centuries before.
0: Mm, And I think what you're saying is so important because I think it's that drip, 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 drip effect, isn't it? It's like, oh, I'm just going to be kind to this person because they've had a bad day and I'm going to ask them how they are and I'll offer them a cup of tea. And in and of themselves, if it was just that one thing, you you know, it it wouldn't probably be a big deal. It's Mm -hmm. like you would offer them support and you'd hope you'd get it another time and it would feel like how we'd like a community community to be and relationship. But it's that, then it's someone else and then people kind of expect it of you and then you're making the cups of tea and then you're not speaking up because you don't want to make someone else feel uncomfortable, even if you think they're wrong. And suddenly it's like, I, I call it like, um, being nice is death by a thousand paper cuts mm-hmm. because it's, they're just so small and in and of themselves. You're like, oh my God, that's really mean of me not to be kind or to to do that or it's not very thoughtful of me to ignore those things and yet when you add them all up it's so much additional time and energy and resources and it's like sometimes you only have enough energy to do your own thing throughout the day without like taking care of everyone else and I saw this little thing like floating around on a social media platform the other day and it said they only realize now as an adult how much of the Christmas magic was what their mother did You know, and it's like putting all of that time in to like bake the cookies or to create the decorations or to decorate the house or or whatever. And for this person, it was like the mother. And I should imagine for many of us, it was the mother that actually did that work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, you wouldn't like begrudge it or not do some of those things. But if you don't do them, it's like, will they get done? And it's like how much of that is kind of what's expected how much of that is our own like you talked about like generational trauma where we don't actually feel we can ask for help
1: because if mm. we ask
0: for help it might not be there or if we ask for help are we being too needy because we've been taught to be those air quotes good girls since we were little and good often looks like sacrificing or betraying ourselves yeah other than speaking up taking up space you know owning our own needs and desires. And instead it's like, well, I'll be okay once everyone else is okay.
1: Exactly that. Yeah. And one of them, sorry. We've been, we've been taught to make nice Mm. always and to make do with whatever scraps of time and attention and energy we have left for ourselves. Um, And it even goes as far as, um, this feeling, um, another thing that's very, been very well researched, researched is um, the feeling of not being able to speak up against this because, one, you might not be understood by the other person, uh, often men, of course, mm-hmm. um, in this context, and then also um, the only way we have gotten our way historically. Is by um, is by being indirect, so by the de- de-escalating, as it's called mm. in um, in literature. So this has actually this can have very detrimental effects on the well-being and the health of women, not only menti- mentally, but also physically, um, and. This is a trigger warning for sexual abuse, so maybe skip this part for like let's say two or three minutes um, if if that's something that you want to skip. Um, there's no uh, there's no shame in being soft with yourself around topics like this. Um, but I find it very important to also maybe mention this because um, what I'm going to share is uh, is something that I see with clients a lot and uh, and how they blame their, themselves for sexual abuse because they didn't speak up. Mm. Um, but what we tend to do when we are in a threatening situation, because we haven't learned to actually stand up for ourselves and we've learned that if we do, we don't get taken seriously by our surroundings very often. We learn to de-escalate. We learn to make nice, even in threatening situations. So what ends up happening is um, a person makes uh, a move to assault us and we try to befriend and befriending is one of the three uh, stress reactions. We have tend and befriend. This is the one I'm talking mm. about now. Then we have running away. Uh, and we have, which is uh, flight, and then we have um, fighting, which is fight, obviously. Well, women, we tend to use tend and befriend much more um, than the other two. And that's because uh, we, of course, were physically generally less stronger than men, not always, but, you know, in general. Um, And we've been taught to really keep ourselves small and to keep everybody on our side to make sure that that everybody's happy with who we are. So when that uh, survival mechanism kicks in, the first thing we do is we try to sort of persuade, and I've been in situations like this, we try to persuade our assaulter to to like us, to not damage us, basically. Um, And, you know, sometimes it works, but oftentimes it doesn't work. And the assault happens anyway. And so what then happens, because we often hear there are four, um, not three, but four survival mechanisms, right? The fourth one being freeze. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Well, actually, freeze is not one of the four. It's another stage. So if it doesn't work to fight, to flee, or to befriend, um, our system tells us, okay, we better play dead. So that's what happens then. So if we cannot befriend our ass- assaulter, then um, our body and our mind just freezes.
0: Yeah. And and dissociates we... from the situation. Yes. Yeah.
1: yeah. And in hopes, well, it's not something you consciously think about, but that's what the survival mechanism is designed for. In it's hopes. Like, how that... do I not die in this exactly. situation? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, this idea of always having to make nice, of always keeping everybody on our side can actually have detrimental effects in that it might prevent you from asking for help, not only in the day-to-day, but in very real uh, um, life-threatening or physically
0: endangering situations such as assault um which is just sorry just before you move on there i think it's you know it's important to note that when like if a woman is courageous enough to go to the authorities Mm -hmm. often it's like well why didn't you fight why didn't you do something and it's like well actually because your body was overtaken by old reptilian ways of trying to keep you safe and you didn't and it's like well you know perhaps maybe there was a misunderstanding in communication (laughs) it's like no, there really wasn't. It was. I mean, I, I really don't understand how, when charges are taken against assailants like this, it's like why it isn't taking into account what actually happens in a person's body when under attack. You know, unless you're like martial art trained or something like that, this isn't an everyday situation. And it's like, it's like, well, maybe there was no fighting back because you know, of how our bodies are actually designed to to like, they just overtake us. Mm-hmm. And it's like in your head, it's easy to go, oh, I should have done this. I should have done this. And it's like, no, your body wouldn't have allowed you to in that moment. Yeah. No. This is what I tell my clients as well. Like it's, uh, it might
1: very well be a good thing that you didn't fight back because mm-hmm. you might not have been here anymore if you, if you had, you know, not to say that you shouldn't fight back if you if you want to, you know, everybody um has the right to defend themselves in those situations. But as you say, you know, the body does what it does, and it might pick up on all kinds of things that you don't even consciously consciously registrate. So um
0: and yeah. I think that to a lesser degree shows up in every day situations right. that we don't even notice. And it's that subconscious patterns that our body has been trained into, yeah. but also not just from this lifetime, but from many, many, many lifetimes. lifetimes yeah. yeah. And I know that a lot of your work is looking at that intergenerational trauma. So how do you see that showing up in everyday life?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, um, that's actually two questions rolled into one. So the intergenerational
1: <laughs> part <laughs> and the day-to-day. Um, yeah. we Now we get to a very interesting uh, another interesting part to this story, because it's not just all what happens within the women themselves, within us, it's also the society we live in and all of the um, subtle ways in which we are a sort of, if you will, put into our place Every day, again and again, you know, it might be a sly comment from somebody, it might be a look from a stranger on the streets, it might be, so all of those subconscious things that you register, I read this quote not too long ago, I don't know who it was from, but um, it was about female intuition, and you know, you and I were both witchy spiritual people, so we believe in that deeper intuition, but there's also like maybe a more superficial intuition, which isn't really intuition. It's just training, which is what this quote was about. You've mm. been trained from a very young age or at least puberty. You know, when you start to develop as a woman, all of a sudden you get looks and comments from people um, and you get treated differently and you see you get treated differently than the boys. You know, the boys get more freedom than you get. So you get trained in sort of picking up on all sorts of subconscious signals that people give you, whether you're safe or not, but also what's expected of you to be part of the group, to be accepted, to be um, a good person, a good woman in the eyes of other people. So how much of that, you know, that um, sort of premonition that we have that, the knowing of oh, I should do this and be this, um, to, to get this situation to a good ending. How much of that is intuition and how much of it is actually sort of decades of training yourself into being attuned to other people's needs and wants and aggressions, even.
0: Yeah, and that's you know, it's one of the things I often talk about with intuition, about identifying actual intu- intuition from trauma which is right. that initial response. And so you think, oh, yeah, but my intuition told me. And it's like, no, if I had any emotional attachment to it, that's not your intuition. That is old patternings going quick, have to behave like this, must do this, must do that. And sometimes, and again, it, it starts to get a little bit murky, which is why intuition is a skill that needs to be practised. But then we have gut feeling, which is like walk walk a different direction, don't get in that lift with that person hail a cab you know or whatever it is and again that's a different kind of uh, communication with our body again but anytime you're like i'm not getting in that lift or i'm going to take a different j- journey home it's like do that <laughs> just just do it it doesn't matter where that information is coming from mm-hmm. and one of the things um i often find with people that are like oh, I'm a highly sensitive person, or I'm like so empathic, I can't walk down the street without feeling everyone's pain. That often comes from, again, a place of trauma where we have to be so hyper-vigilant, particularly as youngsters, to manage, like, how's that person's emotions going to be? How can I make it better? Because as a child, when other people are being negative we think it's about us we are so narcissistic as children because that's part of the learning and development it's like oh the whole world is about me and that person's in a bad mood and we're like oh my god what can i do differently or if someone's gonna be volatile it's like you you learn every single micro expression and feeling and you pick up on everything to make yourself safe because that's all you know to do as a little kid and then as we become adults we don't know to like let that kind of Air quotes guard down because it's no longer appropriate because we now have different tools to make our safe. Mm-hmm. and instead we become so overwhelmed by being hyper vigilant in every case surrounding by like so many people. and then it's like, oh I'm just, it's because just I'm empathic. and whilst it is a skill, it, it's actually sometimes not needed and something we can tone down to
1: mm-hmm. and I think that goes for many people. But it also it goes especially for women um, because there's that added layer of not only do we do we have this internal system that everybody has to attune ourselves as little children to the world Mm -hmm. around us and sort of internalize a lot of things as a, a judgment of who we are and if we're a good kid or a bad kid or whatever. There's this added layer of there are actually are a lot of expectations, uh, implicit expectations put on women, you know. And again, that goes back to where we started. We often are the primary caretaker for children, but also for elderly parents. Mm-hmm. Um, we are often the shoulder to cry on for a lot of people, uh, even in the workspace, you know, and it's it's beautiful um, that there's like this. Maybe this empathy um, that we are eh, with women, that we are very much attached to ourselves as well. But, um, and I'm going to say something which I find quite difficult because I do believe there's a difference between masculine and feminine energy, for instance. But I also believe that we hold both energies within ourselves. And that people who have been born, because we're speaking about women right now, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a whole nother book I can open about men. But um, we as women uh, who have been born in in female bodies, let's say, uh, those who have been born in female bodies, we have all these gender expectations put on us of um, you have to be empathetic. You have to put yourself last. You have to um, uh, be attuned to other people's needs, wants, and even aggressions. Because if you're not, then, you know, why didn't you fight back, for instance, as you said? So what that does in the day-to-day, this is in itself is trauma as well, of course. But what it does in the day-to-day as well is that we learn to put on all different kinds of masks. And I see this a lot with my clients also where we sort of compensate for the the world that we have to live in. We are this kind of person with uh, our friend, and we are another person with our family member and another person at work. Um, and you might even be a different person with your brother than you are with your sister, for instance. Mm-hmm. And it's not, that's not such a, Benign thing, really, because what it does is it it cuts you up, it cuts your identity, your your inner world up into all these different pieces. So that's where what I hear from clients, where you start feeling empty, you know, and you start thinking, "What's wrong with me?" You know, I have I have everything. I hear this a lot. I have a beautiful house, I have a lovely family, or you know, or I'm happy single, whatever it is. Mm. And I have a job that I like, or I do, um, I'm studying for something that I like. I should be so happy, but I feel so empty. Well, that's because you not only have placed your identity in the outside world, you've created many different identities, and that's cut up your true identity on the inside, you know, You,
0: you don't know who you are. It's, it's a complete betrayal of self, isn't it? That's now amazing. that doesn't mean you can't express different parts of your personality, like sure. how you behave around your mother might be very different from how you behave around your sister. But sometimes still- it <laughs> might be. <laughs> sometimes
1: it might be the better choice. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying to fully express yourself yeah. around
0: people. No, but when are you really... are consciously like hiding, cutting away part of yourself, being disloyal to yourself, obviously that's when. That, that trouble and disconnection happens, isn't it? And people are like, I don't understand why I feel so empty. What's, what's wrong with me? And it's like, because there's been a complete betrayal of yourself. Yeah. And it and again, it's so sneaky because it's like drip by drip by drip by drip. You're not going, oh, I have to behave like this with this person. I have to behave like this with someone else. It's just like you instantly like tone your behaviour down to meet other people's expectations rather than going... Oh, well if i'm not their kind of person it doesn't matter there's billions of other people out there that i could go and like hang out with um but it's not it's like oh but i have to like be g-. i think people often join groups of people and subconsciously they're asking who do i have to be in this situation to be loved
1: yeah that's very well, yeah. re- well researched as well it's called in psychological literature it's called the need to belong Mm. We have a need to belong. And so we, um, and it's very fundamental for our survival. If we yeah. go back, you know, to ancient times when we could still be killed by bear, bears and uh, mammoths and stuff on the daily. Um, yeah, you, you were dependent for your survival upon the group. So it's a very fundamental question, you know, who do I need to be to be part of this group? Whereas in modern times, really, you can find your your tribe mm. or by lack of for a better word. But yeah. But what you're saying right now is actually um, going into the, the intergenerational uh, bit that you were asking about as well. Because for women, this need to belong is not as long ago as uh, maybe it is like the survival part of it as it is for men and men have been able to make their own way in the world for much longer than women have been able to um and actually i don't know what it is in uh, the uk where you're from but for instance in the netherlands you could only open your own bank account from 1957
0: we were 1977 and i'm like i was born in 78 and i was like that's in my lifetime (laughs) You know, it was like something ridiculous, like you still had to get your husband's or your father's permission to have your own money exactly. in my lifetime. Okay, exactly. maybe if I was born like a few months earlier, but it, it's it's not that long. That's crazy, you know? right? So that's yeah. one generation mm. ago, mm-hmm.
1: one generation ago, maybe yeah. two, depending on where you're from in the world. And uh, some countries, you know, you're still completely dependent upon the man in your life. Um, so that would be first your father. If your father died, it would be your brother, if you had a brother. Um, and when you marry, uh, married, it would be your husband, uh, who would be your custodian, literally your custodian. Yep. Um, and we were considered to be, I don't know what the English word is, but to be, you know, like not mentally capable, paraphrasing, not mentally capable of taking care of ourselves and taking care of our lives. This was like the foundation, uh, very misogynist foundation Mm -hmm. uh, for, for these rules and regulations. So what that then meant was, if we go back to the need to belong, what it meant was that you had to marry really, really well, you know, to a guy who was financially stable, first of all, but also hopefully kind so that he would grant you a little bit of space of living and, you know, and have some money to do something for yourself. Um, But if you married the wrong guy, or if he wanted, you know, uh, some, if you wanted to do bad, then you would be completely deprived of any way of making, making a life for yourself. So that put women into direct competition with each other. For, for the good guys, you know, you would have to be the prettiest, the nicest girl, the smartest girl. The
0: best you cook would... and, you know, tying yeah. your handkerchief the best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it was. Back Whatever. Then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there were all these
1: handbooks, you know, sometimes you still see a uh, post on social media. Oh, uh, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. the How to make a man happy. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it would be. All these ridiculous rules, you know, which were passed down uh, through the generations and and amongst women of um, like sort of like secrets to being a good wife, really, or or to make your own life in that way indirectly through your man, but like get up an hour early so that you could put on your makeup. Your makeup. And, yeah, and it's these like these handbooks. <laughs> well, do you know? Um, I don't know if you had. Probably you you had this as well, but like household schools and stuff like the, the only real education that women could get uh, mm-hmm. a couple of decades back before we were let into universities and and other occupation, or maybe, you know, like uh, occupations or other uh, studies, um, we could only go to primary school and then household school where we learned mm-hmm. how to fold those napkins and cook those meals. <laughs> Impress the boss.
0: Yeah. Have you ever seen the film Mona Lisa Smile? no oh yeah it's it's there's a there's a scene in there so these girls are going to school but then they do like like you say they go to courses to learn how to welcome home their husband and how to impress the boss and you know some of these girls actually go on to university and some do choose to do the thing but it but it is that and it's like I think for my like my mum she had the choice of either if she was good at school she could go to university but if she wasn't she went to secretary college you know and it's it was like Two choices. That was it. Yeah. You know, and she was probably lucky to have two because the other one would have got married, have babies and raise a family quickly. But it's like in our lifetime and I can remember reading this book once and I think it was I think it was by the BBC and it was about I don't know, like the development of food or something. Mm -hmm. But it was really talking about when women lost their power in the home Mm -hmm. because in time gone by, You know, they would have known how to tend the land, how to garden, how to create food, how to do all the things. And there would have been great power in that because they would have fed the communities. And then we had white goods. We had fridges, we had ovens, we had things like this come along, mass produced. Mm. And the people that would sell it to you would come on in white coats, looking very scientific. Mm -hmm. And... You would have known, like, if your child was poorly in winter, maybe you had some like um, elderberry flower syrup that you, your mum or your grandma or the local witch, whoever, had taught you how to make and deal with that cough. And suddenly, women were like, "Oh, the science must be right. Oh, Mm. maybe that seems a bit old-fashioned. Now I want this nice new fridge and white good." And suddenly, that whole where a woman like had would have traditionally been in like the home or like tending to those things, as you've mentioned, they would have had a power and respect with that. And then came along the white goods, then come along the white scientific coats. And suddenly you don't even have that anymore. Mm. You know, it's like, oh, look at my new Hoover. I <laughs> know all of this thing and everything shifted. I think it was possibly about the forties. Like you mentioned earlier, you mentioned like the forties and the fifties. I think it was about then when everything like domestic completely changed. Yeah, we are uh, so impacted by things that we don't even notice, just sneaking multiple, into our into the marketing. There's multiple points in time. Uh, if you
1: want to talk about when did patriarchy and the subjugation of women start? <laughs> oh,
0: well, yes, <laughs> we most definitely could go back.
1: <laughs> we can go back like fourteen thousand years, uh, even with the introdu- introduction of agriculture. Um this is when um, uh, matriarchal and egalitarian societies sort of switched to uh, patrilineal um, societies, patriarchal societies, because all of a sudden we had possession that belonged not only to like the group uh, that you were a part of, but just your family, you know, and it had to be defended. So armies got built up um, and uh, a men were expected to protect the land or to fight for more land. And women mm. were expected to stay in the home and to do as they were told. And this was also um, uh, when marriage became like something that had more to do with uh, strategic alliances and, um, not really more any uh, partnership anymore, uh, but more like a bond between a woman and a man, <clears throat> so that he would be secure that his sons were actually his sons and his possessions would go to his sons and like this whole patrilineal thing. Um, so 14,000 years ago, uh, the introduction of... Um, Uh, agriculture is is an important point in time then there's like a couple of thousand years after that there's like the the drought in Egypt and um, uh, eastern European uh, uh, sorry eastern Europe as well which pushed a lot of nomadic people that were still nomadic into like western Europe so this is just European history. Uh, into Western Europe, and there would be like an even bigger fight for resources and land. Mm-hmm. And uh, so matriarchal and egalitarian societies didn't really have, um, didn't feel safe to people anymore. You know, this is when hierarchical structures were built were built, um, or hierarchical systems were built um, out of a need for defending really um, and when masculine values became much more important um, to society, because it was all about fighting and defending what you had, you know. Yeah. But we never came back from that, really. And then you have um, the ancient Greeks, and I'm, I'm skipping so I'm many different layers right <laughs> now, big steps because I cannot cover 14,000 years of history in 10 minutes. But like another important point in time were the ancient Greeks who really stole a lot of knowledge from from other cultures, Mesopotamia for instance as well. Um uh, which were more matrilineal uh, or matriarchal, sorry. Um and they had a, a like a disdain for the physical, for the natural, and uh, the cycles of nature as well, and so also for for women in that sense. Not all of them, like not all the big Greek philosophers, um, but many of them, mainly Aristotle and Hippocrates, um, who uh, both sort of more or less said that women were just faulty men. Right. Like something had gone wrong in our biology and our minds. And like we were just malfunctioning men, really, Uh, and um, mostly useful for breeding and nothing else. Uh, Aristotle was really good at making jabs like that, (laughs) if you will. So, yeah, that's another important um, uh, part to the whole like patriarchal intergenerational trauma thing. Uh, in regards to women, because that then set back the um, medical uh, studies, medical research um, being done on women. If you look at like how much further we are, how much further along we are in recognizing and treating certain diseases, uh, for instance, heart diseases with men, mm. um, and how much there is still to discover when it comes to these things with women, you know, and mm-hmm. we can all, we can trace that all back to the ancient Greek who were like, eh, you know, women yeah. are just stupid <laughs> and they're
0: faulty, you know, yeah. that, there's a, there's a book called the invisible woman, which I could only, I, again, I've mentioned it before and I could only read half of it. Cause I was getting so cross. I think it's by is it Caroline Perez. Um, yes. anyway, yeah. um and her her point in there is like a lot of medicine isn't tested on women because we have hormones and yeah. hormones interrupt their studies. And so yeah. we're not a very good case study. And, you know, it wasn't really that long ago when like hysteria was a real thing, when they thought a woman's womb was literally wandering around the body and people would, uh, women, sorry, would get put in mental asylums because they didn't agree with their husband. Oh, mm-hmm. it's a medical condition. Well, let's let's section her. And it's like, no wonder women lost their voice and their ability to speak up. For thousands and thousands of years, they've been told, well, you know, you're a dowry. You're here to stabilise the nations and to breed. Um, And then actually, you don't have sovereignty over your own body. And you're a little bit weird. You know, (laughs) it's like instead of celebrating all that is there, it's just like been taken away by bit by bit and we never really stop to ask why the choices we make or how we show up or where we might be shrinking ourselves like is that really what we feel or is that i would you know i i call it like spells you know things that have that were under the influence of that we don't even notice like that mm. subconscious energy that we've maybe yeah. been taught by our parents who have been taught by their parents who have been taught by their parents and we just take it as fact or we treat it as well, that's just the way it is, isn't it? And It's like, yeah, but it doesn't have to be. Once we start loosening the grip and becoming aware of it, exactly. Well, if you but if you look back, like it isn't so. It's it isn't
1: so strange if you think back. If you think about the fact that it goes back like fourteen thousand years, and it's just layer up on layer up on layer. There's a recent book that's come out. I'm currently reading it, so I cannot like give a full review of it. Mm-hmm. But it, it's pretty good so far. It's called The Patriarchs. And it it shows how, like, patriarchy really is a systemic thing that's been enforced by the powers that were and the powers that be. Um, and it's just, it's a layered thing, and it's been built upon and built upon. So 14,000 years ago, like the introduction of agriculture. Then we have the droughts, which sort of created all this mass migration and this need to fight and defend and the need for masculine Um, uh, yeah energy more than feminine energy then we have the ancient greek who just basically stole a whole bunch of their knowledge that came from the uh, like the old women's traditions and they sort of just uh, appropriated it and then said well women are not interesting you know they're as you say you know they're just there to to, as a dowry or to breed and be beautiful and Mm. shut the fuck up Um, And then we go into sort of modern history. And then, of course, at a certain point, we um, not around the Middle Ages, because the witch hunts were in the Renaissance, but already in the Middle Ages, we see another big turning point in how women are treated and like rights are slowly being stripped because we, we think that our rights have never been there. But that's not true. Like in the early Middle Ages, for instance, women were um uh could have their own businesses we could choose who we wanted to marry so there's been like this we think of the the middle ages as a very dark time they're also sometimes called the dark ages right mm. but they're not really not in the beginning especially for women like we had a lot of freedom we had a lot of rights and as you said you mentioned before like we had a lot of knowledge about the land often we um We knew medicine. We often were medicine women. Um, We often were midwives. And so very well respected. Um, So there was like, for women, it actually was a great time. Because we had sort of regained a lot of the power that we'd lost uh, before. And we were able to make our own living and to choose our own marriages. Not in all classes, but like the middle class, by and large, could. But then um under the influence of the church uh, a lot of this was suppressed again and women were slowly slowly stripped from their rights um and um yeah and and also because you said like um this is what what made me think of this little booklet you said about or you talked about um women knowing like the recipes for um for diseases and stuff, you know, and then all of a sudden in came the men with the lab coats and we were supposed to listen to them. There's a great book about this, which is it's really small, um, really thin. and Which I is recommend,
0: midwives. And, yes. Which is, know, yeah, I was just midwives and nurses. This, this, yeah. This, this conversation is right. Um, in December, we had uh, Bridget Supple on the podcast, and she mm. was she's written a book called uh, *Birthkeeper of Bethlehem*, mm-hmm. and it's it's a it's a fiction book. But um, in it, she talks about when we write women out of stories, and she recommended the same book. And she says because yeah. women had the power, and then the men came in and took the rights of women away because they yeah. realised they were making money, so they exactly. went, "Oh no, you can't do that." And she said, for about a hundred years, loads more women were dying in childbirth because the men didn't know how to help the women birth they didn't know how to turn the babies they didn't know what herbs to give they didn't know what to do Mm -hmm. but because there was money to be made they stripped that away from women so people this is the second time set two podcasts in a row um where that book has been recommended so I will make sure it's in the show notes yeah yeah, everybody should read it and it's like you read it in a day it's it's
1: really not that um not that big of a book Um, But it's so jam packed with knowledge and just eye openers. Your mind will be blown. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. So then we had like that whole episode, which again sort of covers centuries because it's uh, not for nothing that it's called uh, witches, midwives, nurses. We used to be like the wise women with knowledge of the lands, and then the witch hunts happened. And, but part of that knowledge, still remained, and mostly among midwives. Um, and that's then where we still had some of that wisdom. We were still some of, in some regards, like that those wisdom keepers. And then in came the man with the white lab coats who wanted to make money, and we were sort of demoted to the position of nurse, you know, like mm. the, the helpmate. Um, and just using that word also, again, makes me think about like the big hand that the church had,
0: um, from of writing women out of history as of well writing women out yeah. of history yeah so you can't even look back and go oh look all these women have done all these great things and like you said your your one of your mentors calls it her story mm-hmm. because it is written by the men which often has huge gaps in their energy so I know that often you know We've been very cheerful right now. About, oh, this is terrible. This is awful. This is why. <laughs> Such so, an know, uplifting vodka. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I said knowledge is power. So when people often learn this and they start to suddenly notice it in their own life, it can cause them to feel really quite angry, which is... Perfectly natural. Yeah. What do you recommend people do to like reclaim that power to take back like autonomy and authority of themselves, of their lives, even of their bodies? It's like, what, what would you recommend is like a good place for people to start? Yeah. Ninka's like, woohoo, yes, let's talk. (laughs) I'm starting to dance right now. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, dancing actually is a, is a really, Mm. really good way of reclaiming in many ways. Um, Uh, Yeah, so dancing might be a tool to do what I'm going to recommend. But first off, actually do not suppress the rage that you're feeling. Don't think like, oh, oh my goodness, I'm so angry right now. You know, I've been angry for a week about this. Shouldn't, isn't it time that I step over it and just, you know? No. Um, Rage, anger is very healthy. It's very good for you. It's often a sign that a boundary has been violated. And boundaries have been violated for centuries again. And they might show up in your life as an intergenerational trauma that you're just now starting to recognize. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's it's perfectly normal to feel that anger. And it's telling you something. And anger has fire in it. And fire is the element of transmutation, of, of course. So use your anger as fuel, not to stay in that place, not to become bitter or you know hardened or whatever. Um, but really use it, feel it, and let it move through you. You can do that through dance. You can do it by writing. You know, and not censoring yourself, just write everything down on a page, and use every swear word you know. <laughs> <laughs> Let your let that deep inner voice speak through you because you know what anger is, is that deep deep inner voice that's been suppressed and that just wants to come out. So give it and give it a way out. Dance it out. Write it out. Um, you can punch. You know you can punch a pillow on your bed, and you will find that once you really let it all out and you do not censor yourself in that expression, however that expression looks for you, then something else comes up underneath of that. You know, something else comes up from that. There, there likely will be sort of a feeling of silence, like a deep inner silence first. This feeling of, oh, okay, I've completely emptied myself out. And just the stillness. And then something different starts to move within you. Then you will start to feel like, oh, this is what I actually want in within this relationship. Or I should have said something about this thing long ago and I'm going to say it now, you know. And you will find that you have a clearer connection with that deep intuition. Not the superficial intuition we've al- also talked about, but the deep, mm. grounded knowing of this is who I am, and this is where I want to go with my life. Um, and that will stay with you. So just anger is just a way to transmute really like all of the rubble and all of the things that have been imposed upon you. Um, so let it out in a safe way that doesn't harm you or anybody else, obviously, but let it out. And then from the um, the stillness that comes from that um, and the clear like the clear connection you have to yourself, communicate what you need and who you are and be very, very decisive in that. That's one. Um, And the second part to it is pleasure. I speak Mm. a lot about pleasure in general and specifically sexual pleasure. um, For many reasons. One is like, it's the ultimate act of rebellion in a world that. (laughs) <laughs> that wants women to conform or to subjugate themselves or to tend to other people's needs. You know, pleasure is a, especially sexual pleasure is a beautiful way to be um, a little bit more uh, egoistic in a healthy way, you know, to, to give yourself a big part of the pie <laughs> <laughs> um, and eat it whole, you know, <laughs> and then, um, also where there is pleasure, there can cannot be stress. So if you're in a place of pleasure, you cannot be stressed. I'd never thought about that before.
0: Interesting. Yeah. yeah.
1: True pleasure. So I'm not mm. talking about the like, and this is something that you might have to learn. I'm not even gonna say relearn because most of us have not even started to learn. Uh, if you can experience sexual pleasure from a place of relaxation and not
0: mm. like this high pressured. Um, not a superficial pleasure, but like right. a real almost like opening and receiving energy. Completely, mm. yes, yes. Um,
1: to to be a little bit more, how um, to say this? Um well straightforward, yeah. To be a little bit more straightforward. If you can, try to not um go um go at your run, try to not run towards your orgasm and specifically clitoral orgasm. You know, just leave the clit alone for the first <laughs>
0: 20 minutes. <laughs> receive allow yourself to receive yeah. yeah
1: and see if there are other ways to touch your body or to be touched um and uh, and find deeper a deeper pleasure in that you know women can orgasm in more than 10 different ways And again, this also, the research has just started because the female orgasm for a long time wasn't a thing. Well, obviously it was a thing, but it wasn't recognized. It wasn't important, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, And this ties back to your story about hysteria, by the way. Uh, Some might know this, but uh, the vibrator vibrator was invented to treat hysteria because... um, women would suffer with um, nervous breakdowns and, and doctors didn't know what to do other than to as you say, you know, uh, perform a hysterectomy or put women into asylum. So around ni- the 1900s there came this idea of hmm, maybe there's a more humane way of going about these hysteric episodes that women have. Let's try and treat them in another way. And there was this one doctor, I forgot his name, um, but he... <laughs> Came to the conclusion. Um, it's kind of kind of sweet and cute if you think about it. He, for some reason, he sort of discovered that women have a clitoris, and he didn't connect this to sexual pleasure. He just was like, hmm, "Let's see what this
0: button does." This button does yeah. <laughs> on off.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so, first by stimulating manually. Um he, he could make women orgasm, but he didn't realize it was an orgasm. He just noticed that after they had this big outburst of hysteria, the orgasm, they all of a sudden were like very happy and very relaxed. <sighs> oh, a doctor on the right path. <laughs> but you can, you can imagine that all of this manual stimulation just, and this is not like, I'm not making this up. This is r- the real truth of how it went. Um, gave him cramp in his hands because women were lining up for this revolutionary treatment. They were (laughs) being very stressed. (laughs) (laughs) They were coming in from different towns and cities just, you know, to find relief. Um, There's a funny movie made about this as well, like uh, based on historical facts. I think it's actually called Hysteria. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I I I recommend watching that um, just for funsies. But um, <laughs> so that's when he, he um, and this was around the time of the Industrial Revolution as well. So, you know, they had um, mechanical stuff and electricity and whatever. So he invented basically like the first vibrator to make it easier for him to treat <laughs> treat patients.
0: I just imagine them lined up like a little factory <laughs> with their little mechanisms going on like (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) yeah so that's like that's the the origin of the um uh, of of female sexual like the recognition of female sexual pleasure in modern times
0: um (laughs) but um but it wasn't to be kind it Sorry. was to deal with the problem. Do you know what yes. I mean? It wasn't like, it wasn't to be kind and be like, I wonder how we could make life more satisfying for women. It was like, oh, it's a bit of an inconvenience than being hysterical. And like, what can we do to solve that problem? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And mm. and actually, like, uh, at
1: the same time, like in the same time period, women were still expected to be... um like a starfish, to lay in starfish in, uh, in their marital bed because it was considered very improper for a woman to um, enjoy sex. You know, you, you had to be a prostitute to make noises or movements, but like real and proper wives were, yeah, were expected to just lay on the bed and let their husband like do their, their thing for 10 minutes on top of them. Mm. Um, so this is like the funny sort of dichotomy there where on the one hand, women were treated for hysteria with vibrators in essence. And on the other hand, they were still, these same women were still expected to sort of lay still and let it happen in their, in their marital beds, uh, which I cannot imagine every woman would have done but you know yeah but they didn't equate like this this hysteria treatment to sexual pleasure that actually came decades later like i think it was like sort of in the 50s around that time that there were some researchers who were like hmm i wonder again what this little button does <laughs> <laughs> and that's when they officially recognized that there's a clitoris that uh, is actually connected to female sexual pleasure, that women can orgasm as well, um, which was a good thing on the one hand. But on the other hand, um, the the outcome of that was that we've, for a very long time afterwards, thought that the female sexual pleasure was just the clitoral orgasm. Mm. Um, and it's not until, like again, 50 years later, so let's say in the last 10 to 20 years, we started to recognize that one the clitoris is a much bigger organ than just that little button. It actually goes through the labia um, and into the vaginal walls as well. Um, but also that the the nervous system of a woman of a woman is wired in such a way that she can orgasm in many more ways than just through her genitals. Yeah. So also. By uh, touching like other parts of the skin, if you build it up for long enough, uh, or uh, a nipple orgasm is an is an option as well. Full body orgasm, and if you go about sexuality in that way, then you're actually dropping into pleasure on a very deep level. And this is one of the things I teach my clients in my pleasure courses as well. You drop into your body on such a deep level, there is there is like this there cannot be stress anymore
0: mm. because you have to
1: be so fully relaxed there's just the nervous system in a way is very simple it has like the stress pathway and it had which is the sympathetic nervous system then you have the parasympathetic nervous system which is the relaxation response and when one is on the other is off and vice versa so this is why pleasure is the antithesis and antithesis is that how you say it <laughs> to Um, to stress and why it is such a such an important thing to to grant yourself and the ultimate act of rebellion
0: i love it people (laughs) experiment (laughs) have loads of great sex yes more pleasure more pleasure more receiving more allowing and it is one of those things isn't it to be able to receive that amount of pleasure it's about being present in your body yeah and that is you know in a world that's judging and shaming and all of those things, it's difficult to be present in a body, which is why it comes back to the first thing you said was like dancing, embodiment, getting to know yourself, giving yourself permission to know yourself. When you mm-hmm. know yourself, you get to know where your edges are. Your edges are your boundaries. What will you accept? What won't you accept? What is yours? What isn't yours? And you just start unraveling all this generational stuff mm-hmm. that's been going on. And I think one of the key things here is just to be kind to yourself mm-hmm. because for many people, this might be new and <laughs> just be there like reeling, going, what? And for many I people, have to,
1: <laughs> I have to
0: punch <laughs> a pillow in anger and then I have to self-pleasure. Excuse <laughs> me. Yes, darling, you do, but you can take it one step time. <laughs> yeah. Gently, gently, gently. You know, and when you do find yourself in those, like, oh, damn, I did it again. I did the good girl thing again. Or I, you know, I made it okay for someone else instead of like defending my own belief or value or whatever it is. It's like, oh, damn, you know, I found myself doing this other thing again. And it's like, for decades, you've been doing this. Mm -hmm. It's okay if it takes more than a week to start undoing it. But once you do bring your awareness to it, we start to notice. And then it can be like, oh this is what they were talking about and we notice and we know and then we'll watch a like a rom-com or something and we'll be like oh, oh and you feel your blood getting crazy with it because you're like you suddenly start to know the films and the books and everything in our culture is set up with this trope you know this yes. old story and it's like oh that's why it's so difficult to break yeah and break we get it we um, get it. A- <laughs> it gets reinforced, right? Yep. It gets reinforced
1: through the yeah. movies, through the, um, yeah. Just through, through the books, culture, and just, through yeah, everything. Marketing and actually like our true connection to ourselves, like to our true femininity. Um, if you want to look at like feminine energy versus masculine energy, um, the true feminine energy, if you will, and, again, we hold both, whether you're a man or a woman or intersex or uh, trans or whatever, we all hold both energies. But the feminine energy, not just women, but the feminine energy mm. in the world has been suppressed. And so if you look at what is true feminine energy, it is that uh, parasympathetic nervous system. It is that that deep relaxation and the pleasure and the... Um, And that's what what true surrender is, you know, because there's a lot of talk about, which really irks me, but there's a lot of talk about surrender on social media right now. Like women, a true woman has to be a surrendered woman. But it's again like through that patriarchal lens of being surrendered to the guy in your life. Mm. That's not what true surrender is. True surrender is that deep relaxation which helps you to drop into your body and then feel from that embodied place, really, as you say, you know, what are my wants and needs? What's my yes, what's my no. And, and then to communicate that from a, a grounded place as well, like from a, uh, how do you say this? Like a soft place where you're not having to step outside of yourself or put on a harness or fight Mm -hmm. for your truth, but just, Be
0: and so it's the energy of being, isn't it? And from that place of being, it's like that's where you find your intuition, that's where you find your creation, that's where all of that pleasure comes. And like that's the gift of the feminine energy, yes. And that's surrender the passive energy, it's just actively being, yeah, and receiving and deep, deep connection and nourishment, yeah. Oh, Ninka, what a juicy conversation! So let people know where they can find you because you have your own podcast, Queencast. Yes, I do. And you'll find me on there back in June. Um, yes. But where else is the best place for someone to come and learn more about your work and dive deeper into these topics with you?
1: Oh well, um the best place would be Instagram. I'm really active there, uh, which is at nienke Turling. So
0: Sure. Like if you just spell all my in food. the show notes, it's all in the show notes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> my yeah. um my name is, is quite a hassle for people who are not Dutch, even for Dutch people, by the way, my last name isn't that easy, but yeah. So just my full name on Instagram um, and I create content there both in Dutch and in English. Um, so there might be something for you there. Then I have my podcast, as you say, the queen cast, um, which has some English guests on as well. And I've been thinking about making more English content there by myself as well. Um, and for all of my Dutchies and my people from Belgium who also speak Dutch, you can also find me on my website, uh, ninketerlings.com.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're so close and so different in language. Um. <laughs> um Thank you so much. I've absolutely loved this conversation. And it, it's it's one that, you know, we can just have time and time and time and time again and just yeah. be like, there's a reason it's like not completely our fault when we're like, why am I doing this? Why am I behaving like this? Why haven't I done X, Y, and Z? And it's like, there's a whole load of history, her story um, missing and his story stuck on you that we just have to like, t- imagine taking off an old overcoat and then going, oh, what is it I now want to consciously create? So yes, in in the show notes, there'll be book recommendations, all links to Ninka's work. And just be curious, be curious and be kind to yourself as we explore these topics. So thank you very much. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Thank you.